0: Well, good morning again, 59th Street family. I uh, just want to welcome those of you who are joining us a little bit later today. Um, now, so far, we've, we've explored through the book of Proverbs and Job, uh, but today I want to look at perhaps one of my favorite books to meditate on in the Old Testament, and that is the book of Ecclesiastes. And traditionally, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is uh, said to be written by King Solomon, who calls himself Koheleth, which means teacher or preacher. And one of the big themes of Ecclesiastes is a deep inquiry into the human condition and a deep inquiry into the meaning of life itself. What does it mean to find satisfaction in life? What is the purpose of life itself? And where can we find lasting joy? And the way that Ecclesiastes is written is it's quite interesting because more often than not, rather than just pointing straight to the answer or giving you the answer itself of where you can find joy, Solomon takes a more of an indirect approach by telling us first where it cannot be found. And I believe this is incredibly instructive for us because by showing us where it cannot be found, it leaves us in a situation where we have to confront the idols in our lives. And I think one of the major reasons this book doesn't get the attention it deserves is because it really lays bare. If we read it, it really lays bare the condition of our hearts, even as believers, right? It exposes to us where we actually, truly try to find joy in life. And so as Solomon begins to kind of systematically dismantle our idols, it leaves us with a sense of hopelessness. It leaves us with a sense of maybe depression or doubt. But I think just as medicine is foul to the taste but healing for our body, I think we should critically examine Ecclesiastes for what it's worth. And so as we read it, I think it might, it might stir up some negative emotions or thoughts, but let us look at it from a positive perspective. Let us look at it in the perspective of how this book can bring us back onto the right path with God. And so before we begin, I, I wanna share a story um, I heard a long time ago that kind of mirrors the themes of, of um, Ecclesiastes. And the story takes place in a small village in Japan, uh, where there was a very wise teacher. And this teacher had a favorite student who was about to go to Kyoto to serve as an advisor under the emperor. And so as a parting gift, the student, he he hand-made an elegant porcelain cup with paintings of the local landscape. And so the student left, he gave the gift uh, to his teacher, and the wise teacher, he continued to teach, And every morning, as as the teacher gathered with his students to eat breakfast, the teacher would take out his new favorite porcelain cup with a radiant smile, right? Not only was it beautiful to the eye, but it was also made by his favorite student. And so day after day, week after week, month after month, in front of all his students, every single morning, he would tell them, there's no cup more beautiful and more meaningful than this. And one day, as one of the students went to refill the teacher's cup, the student slipped and accidentally broke his master cup, his master's cup, shattered into pieces. Tea was everywhere on the floor, and the room was filled with silence. Everyone was horrified. They looked at the teacher, they looked at the shattered cup, they looked back at the teacher, wondering how this man would react. And out of nowhere, the teacher burst out into laughter, and everyone was confused. Why is our teacher laughing? Isn't that his favorite cup, they wondered. And the teacher, he called out to one of his students. He said, Kyojuro, get the broom, for now this cup is garbage. And the students shot back, but teacher, was this not your favorite cup? How can you call it garbage? Is it still not precious to you, though it's broken? And the teacher replied, it was already broken the day I received it. Only you could not see it. But now that you do see it broken, what good is a shattered cup? than to be thrown into the trash with the rest of the garbage. And at that moment, the students' eyes, they were all opened. And so hopefully what this short story began to evoke within you is is a sense of reflection, right? Where do I tie my hope? Where do I tie my joy to? I think most of us, by default, we would say Jesus, right? Of course we would. But if God were to examine our hearts, is that really true? Do we truly find satisfaction in Christ alone? And so as we begin to examine that question of where our hope and joy comes from, I I want to read for us the passage today from Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. So let's read this together. And he reads, the word of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And he says this, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear full of its hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them quite a you know honestly like quite a quite a depressing passage if, if, if i'm being honest and so as the, as the book of ecclesiastes starts it, it presents to us i think one of the most quoted phrases uh, of the entire book, which is quite startling because it it runs against the grain of our daily strivings and our daily ambitions. Right? It it begins with a theme that actually runs throughout the the entire book, where Solomon says, according to the NIV at least, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's certainly one way uh, to capture uh, the audience, one way to dramatically start a book, but let's pause here for a moment, because I think if we, if we only read the English translation for this word, it doesn't quite capture what Solomon is trying to say. And because it doesn't really quite capture it, I think if we only read the NIV translation, I think it could have some pretty bad consequences for our faith, and also our, our, our mental well-being as well. And the word here for meaningless, it actually doesn't really mean meaningless, is Hebrew word hebel, or hevel, which at its core means vapor, or breath. And so Solomon says that breath, breath, everything is but a vapor, but a breath. And since winter is most definitely coming, it's, it's always fun, right, to breathe out into the air. We watch our breath appear, and then it, again, disappears into the air. And this is the core of what Solomon is trying to say about the worlds that we live in. He's not saying that everything lacks meaning, but rather that everything lacks permanence in this world. He's saying that utterly everything in our life is transient, which means that everything comes and goes. Like the vapor we breathe out on a cold winter day, it looks solid, and then quickly it vanishes away. And the reason that Solomon says this is not because he's being pessimistic about the world or that Solomon is going through a bout of depression, but when we look at our reality and our lives with wisdom, And with clarity, we actually begin to understand what Solomon is exposing here, that he's telling us the truth. You see, the thing is, compared to eternity, everything in our lives is like vapor. All things come and go in an instant. I used this illustration once um, during our Christmas service, I think like a year or two ago. But if, if you were to chart out the creation of the universe, uh, with you know the start of the universe being January 1st and December 31st being the present day reality, right? If you were to compress the entire universal timeline into, into one year, do you know, how, do you know how, how soon humanity would have appeared on this timeline? It would have appeared less than one minute ago. Kind of crazy. Humans existed on this timeline one minute ago. In fact, on this timeline, Columbus arrived to America seconds ago. And assuming we live up to 100 years, then our whole lifespan would equal to 0.23 seconds. 0.23 seconds. And to give you an estimate of of how fast that is, if you blink your eye, that takes 0.4 seconds, which means every time you blink your eye, you know, 200 or so years, pass by. That's very, very, very fast. And so literally, on this grand timeline of eternity, all things, literally, are but a breath. And although this helps to put things into perspective, the deeper wisdom that Solomon wishes us to understand through the statement of all things being like vapor is that our lives are also marked by constant change. Solomon, in verses 5 to 6, he talks about the sun and the wind, going back and forth, back and forth. And the reason why he brings this up is that the sun and the wind are actually metaphors for our lives. It's always marked by constant change. We move from periods of sorrow into periods of joy. But at the same time, we also move from periods of achievement into seasons of failure. Round and round we go, like the sun or the wind. Everything changes within us and around us, but the pattern of life stays the same. Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And I think we're all very acutely aware of this piece of truth, intellectually at least. But how do we begin to apply this truth into our lives so that we can have a deeper walk with God? And Solomon, in his usual form, rather than simply telling us the answer of how we can apply this truth into our lives, he actually forces us to dig even deeper. In verses 7 to 8, Solomon says, in my opinion, at least, one of the wisest statements I've I've heard in my life. He says this, All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the stream comes from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear full of its hearing. And if you understand this verse very well, it's actually incredibly powerful. I've actually used this verse to witness to non-believers. i actually use this verse uh, to witness to my own dad. Um, and the reason it's so powerful is because it speaks straight into the human condition. It reveals the cause of our suffering in life. And it also reveals to us why trying to find joy in life is like catching air or catching vapor. We grab onto joy and then suddenly it disappears. So what is the cause of suffering in our lives, then? And the root cause of suffering, or the root cause of human suffering, at least, is our human effort of tying our joy to things that change. Let me repeat that one more time. The root cause of suffering is the human effort of tying our joy to things that change. And this causes suffering for two reasons. In one of my favorite shows, Uh, The Young Pope, starring Jude Law, there's a scene where there's a young prostitute who deeply desires to have a romantic relationship with the Pope. And as she reveals her love to the Pope, um, he apologizes to her and he says this, and I think it's, it's incredibly profound, he says this to her. He says, I have renounced my fellow man and my fellow woman because I don't want to suffer, because I am incapable of withstanding the heartbreak of love because I'm unhappy, like all priests." He says, It would be wonderful to love you the way you want to be loved, but it's not possible, because I'm not a man. I'm a coward, like all priests. And although this is a work of fiction, the writer of this show, he understands the first truth, that suffering is created in us when we desire the things of this world to never change. In an ideal world, The love never fades. The heartbreak never comes. Neither person changes in a negative way. But the reality is, that's never the case. And for some people, the the hurt that comes from change is so intense that they deliberately choose to live a life of solitude because they cannot bear the pain of being hurt by people. They cannot bear the pain of being hurt by relationships that shift and change. They see in themselves how easy it is to idolize the feelings of romantic love and turn that love into their only source of joy. They see how easy it is for their hearts to turn into something that is vapor and try to hold onto to it as if it's solid, only for it to vanish from their hands. But the second way that suffering is created within us is also when we desire the things of this world to satisfy. In our passage, Solomon says that despite how much water flows into the sea, it never has enough. No matter how many sights and sounds we experience as humans, it is also never enough. And this is a universal experience that all humans have, regardless of what you believe. And the reason for this is that it's true. We think there is never enough. Never enough money, never enough friends, never enough power, never enough respect. Even in the Garden of Eden, the first temptation that fell upon humanity was the idea that there's not enough. God is not enough. And so now I have to be like God. But how can things that disappear and shift ever give us a sense of satisfaction? All things come and go. Our wealth comes and goes. One decade, we're in a bull market. The next thing, our retirement drops 20% and inflation goes up 10%. Our friends come and go. Either they leave us or we leave them. Our beauty fades. The power and respect we have, it fluctuates all the time. One week, I think I'll write a good sermon, and the next week, I might write a bad one. How can we expect to satisfy ourselves with things that ultimately disappear on their own? Like the illustration I gave at the start of the sermon of the wise teacher who knew that this cup would one day be broken, This story forces us to ask ourselves, would we tie our source of joy to things that will disappear? Would we tie our source of joy to our possessions? And logically, we would say, no, of course not, right? Why would we tie our joy to things that disappear? But that is actually what we do, if we are honest. And when we do so, we produce suffering in our lives. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not continue to build our proverbial house on sand which shifts and changes. Let us not be foolish and root our joy in things that can vanish. Let us not store for ourselves, as Jesus says, treasures on earth which can be stolen or eaten by moth, but rather store for ourselves treasures in heaven and to find our joy fixed on God alone. But how do we do that? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes, unfortunately, it never answers that question satisfactorily uh, because Ecclesiastes by itself is incomplete, much like how the Old Testament is incomplete without the New Testament. And as you keep these themes of, of impermanence, as you keep these themes of suffering and, the, and what causes suffering, I want you, as you keep that in your mind, I, I want to read for us a story. And it's perhaps a story that you've heard many times, but hopefully this time you'll hear it with new ears. And here's how the story goes. Now, when Jesus had to go through Samaria, he came to a town in Samaria called Sukkar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into town to buy food. living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Comes and goes, comes and goes. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I think many people, when they read this passage, they think that this woman is quite stupid and foolish, thinking that she just wants to satisfy her physical thirst. But I think what she said here is someone who exhibits wise faith. If you actually read the rest of the story, right? Jesus doesn't critique her about eternal life. He doesn't give her a whole theology about eternal life. He actually exposes to her where she tries to find joy in her husbands, in her many husbands, which comes and goes, comes and goes. But she exhibits wise faith because she experiences the feelings of dissatisfaction. She experiences the feelings of emptiness in this life. But rather than using these feelings and turning into depression, She instead uses these feelings of dissatisfaction, of emptiness to find God. You see, these feelings of impermanence, these feelings of never enough, it's actually a gift from God to direct us on the right path. It's supposed to point us to the person who can satisfy us. It points to the person who can give us steadfast joy. And if these feelings are gifts and pointers from God, then let us pray, just like the Samaritan woman. That, Lord, give us your living water so that I no longer have to thirst for things that do not satisfy. Lord, give us your living water so I do not have to continually toil for a joy that vanishes as quickly as I get it. Lord, give me your living water so that I can find my satisfaction in you alone. All things change in life, but it's only God's love for you that never changes. You forget to pray, you forget to talk to God for a week, a month, an entire year. You stop reading your Bible because life gets too busy. Hey, maybe you stop coming to church altogether. But one day you turn your eyes back to God, and you realize his love for you never changed, never increased, never decreased. It's a love that is always steadfast. A Jesuit priest, one day he was reflecting on Peter's betrayal of Jesus. And According to the Gospel of Luke, we read this. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And at that moment, while he was still speaking, a rooster grew. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter went outside and wept. The Jesuit priest, he said this, I always had this uneasy feeling that Christ wanted to look, wanted me to look at him. And I would not. I would talk to Christ, but I I would always look away when Christ was looking at me, because I was afraid. I was afraid I should find an accusation in his eyes. I was afraid that there would be a demand, something that he wanted from me. But one day, I summoned up the courage and looked. There was no accusation, no demand. The eyes just said, I love you. And like Peter, I went outside and wept. Brothers and sisters, all of us here have this unconditional love from God that never changes and a joy that will never fade if we root ourselves in that love. Like the woman at the well, I encourage all of us to turn to the Lord for that living water that satisfies us completely. If you desire unconditional love, look no further. If it's respect and honor that you desire, Christ has called, God has called you as the co-heirs with Christ, not above Christ, not under Christ, with Christ in the sense that God looks at you the same way he looks at his son, treats you with the same respect and honor that he treats his own son. You are now co-heirs with Christ. If it's comfort that you desire, not only will Christ provide in this lifetime here, but he has already prepared for you something far more glorious in his kingdom which is to come. Everything else fades. Even the earth one day will be renewed. But the thing is, we rest our hopes, we rest our joys, our lives in the Alpha and the Omega. The God who is the beginning and the end. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so as we're about to come together for a time of prayer, I I want to encourage us first to wake up. Wake up to the reality that we have tied our entire lives, even as Christians, we have tied our lives to things that come and go. We've been adulterers. We have not given everything up to God. But as we wake up, we're called now to clean up, as we receive the forgiveness of sins from God, that he has wiped away our sins, he has wiped away our guilt and our shame as well. We're cleansed, we're set free from the past, our sins are forgotten forever. And so we wake up, we clean up, now we grow up as we recommit our lives to God to truly find in him the satisfaction for all we need. So brothers and sisters, why don't we do that today? Why don't we come together for a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, today we confess to you the fact that we search everywhere. We search everywhere for joy and for satisfaction. We have turn to the things of this world into our own gods. We worship the created rather than the creator. We take things that, we are, that are meant for us to enjoy into our only source of joy and satisfaction. And for that, Lord, we, we repent. We repent to you knowing that we have not given you our whole hearts. We hide parts of ourselves from you because we are afraid. We are cowards. We are afraid of being let down even by you. But you have shown us on the cross, that there is nothing that can separate us from you. You came down to live with us. You walked around with us. You healed us. You have lifted yourself on the cross for us, and on the cross, you have died for us. We acknowledge that you descended into hell on our behalf, and as you rose from the grave, you have set us free even from death itself. And so, Lord, if you would only allow that mustard seed of faith of ours to grow, if you will develop within us the courage to give our whole lives to you, only then will we taste this living water that you have promised. Father, I'm reminded of, of what you've told us in Psalm 34, to taste and see that the Lord is good, and how happy is the one who takes refuge in him. And as we're about to take of, partake of communion later today, Father, I pray that you will let us taste, that you will let us see how you're good to us, even today. And pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.